Well, ladies and gentlemen, my name's David Thoreau, and I'm the founder and president of the C.S. Lewis Society of California. I apologize for the delay. I'm afraid the rain has made traffic pretty intense out there. Uh, those of you who are students at Berkeley, of course, I haven't that problem at the moment. Um, we're delighted to have our panel this evening uh, before J.P. Moreland's plenary talk. Um, how many of you are not familiar with C.S. Lewis? Can you raise your hand? Well, that's pretty good. Um, the C.S. Lewis Society is an organization of people who are interested in the work of Lewis and the ideas that he uh, focused on and others who similarly have advanced these ideas, which are uh, essentially intrinsic to Christian theism and uh, the implications of that. And anyone interested in apologetics who's not familiar with Lewis uh, can really benefit a great deal, we believe, from reading him and, again, other people who've written in that tradition. So we have a panel of four people, including myself, who'll be speaking. Um, and I'll introduce the first two, uh, and I'll introduce the third. Uh, hopefully, he'll be able to get here. Uh, we'll start out with uh, Andrew Doza, who is an attorney uh, here in Oakland. Um, and he is secretary of the C.S. Lewis Society of California. And um, uh, he'll be followed by Roy Carlisle, who is the acquisitions director at the Independent Institute uh, and also a board member of the Independent Publishers Association, Book Publishers Association. Um, so we'll have four speakers and then we'll have Q&A. So, Andrew? So they've done four to you. Yep. start with a question. How many of you have heard uh, someone describe our culture as a relativist culture? And how many of you have been told that there is a rejection of moral authority and everyone questions everything and everyone decides that they're going to make up their rules for themselves? Well, I think that C.S. Lewis uh, would, would agree that the framework of our culture is like that that we question authority, we don't agree that there are moral absolutes, and that we can set our own course. But C.S. Lewis' own, own experience uh, is that that's not true. And the reason why is because he understood, as he looked at life, as he grew up as a young man, being very imaginative, very creative, uh, writing stories, telling stories, that when he told those stories, they connected with something deep within him that was immutable, that was something that we shared by all of us. And so C.S. Lewis, at the end of his life, after he decided that he didn't want to write non-fiction books about apologetics or about miracles or something, and he wanted to focus on stories, he was going back to when he was a young boy, realizing that there were myths and legends and stories that all told universal concepts about, about what was right and what was wrong. And he, uh, he had a quote that, that helped clarify things for, uh, for himself and also for us, and that is, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, 
the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So what C.S. Lewis wanted to do with, with his stories was tap into deep and core values that he held on to, which he believed everyone shared. And so um, we also know that there was another great uh, teacher that also liked to tell stories, and that was Jesus. And one of my favorite stories that Jesus told, was not really a story, but just a way he described a conflict that people had. And he said, you know, why is it that you are so occupied with the, the speck in your neighbor's eye when you have a log in your own eye? So the first question I have to ask you is, have you ever seen anyone with a log in their eye? So Jesus wasn't talking about a flesh and blood reality, was he? Or was he? Right? Was he talking about something that happens? Or doesn't happen. To get my point, he told a story about how we can be so occupied with other things around us. So, C.S. Lewis, I'm trying to tap into a higher power. <laughs> All right, nothing bothers me. Um, so you and I know that when we're focused on some other problem that somebody else has, we very often are missing the problems that are more significant for us to deal with, right? So that little story or parable, that exaggeration about the world, tells a very, very powerful, very powerful truth. Um, and so C.S. Lewis believed that the way to connect with people around him was to tell stories. And he also liked to think about what it was like for a child to hear a story and what it was like for an adult to hear a story. And he realized that if you could tell a story that really captivated a child, it was more likely than not going to captivate an adult. And if an adult shunned that, then an adult was missing out on an opportunity to discover something deep and rich and very, very powerful. So uh, I suppose I could go on for another 30 minutes, but maybe I'll just kind of slow things down for here. I'll just ask you this question. When you're dealing with people around you, what are the things that, that are most powerful for them? Uh, is, the, is that which is most powerful to them some kind of a scientific experiment or some kind of logical or rational argument? Or is it that they have deep core needs and deep core drives, right? The people around you you will experience have three or four main, main uh, principles that they strive for. One is a striving or a seeking for love two, a, a passion and commitment for justice, and third, a hopefulness. Now, if all we were going to do is survive, then we wouldn't be very hopeful. We would just be fighting like crazy because there would be nothing else that would drive us except that. But if you talk with people around you, they are always hopeful that there will be a better world ahead. Not that they survive, but that there will be a meaningful, powerful, spiritually vital and satisfying experience for them. And if you talk about people who say that they're relativists, what you will notice is that they're not amoral, they're not without morals, they're very passionate about the morality, are they not? But the morality also is a connection to something deep inside them that is a core for all of us, and that is that we all want to see that things are fair, that we're treated appropriately, that we're treated fairly. And third and most significantly, we're all just searching for love, right? Um, we search for it sometimes in the wrong ways, but we are driven by something that's in us that is, uh, that is inevitable because we're, we're created by a God who is a God of love. And so we have 
in a sense, the, the molecules of the God who's a God of love, right? It's part of our fiber. Um, I'll just say my personal view is that there's no such thing as an atheist. Because how could you be created by the God who is the lover of your soul and not know that God? Um, if you look at, let's use the example of Beethoven. Beethoven wasn't sure that he would consider himself a, a Christian, but everything around him inspired him about beauty in music. And, and music, is, music is like the, the voice of the soul. It's the voice of the spirit giving, giving a cry out to the hopefulness that there is something more and something powerful and something beautiful. So I would just say that as you're dealing with people in your lives, whatever they may say, whether they would say that they're a scientist uh, or uh, a liberal arts major, you will see that, the three, uh, that all of the, everyone you deal with has those core, those core values, those core drives, and they all relate to stories. They all understand stories. And so for C.S. Lewis, who was turned in his life um, to, to remember what stories meant to him, um, I encourage you to remember how powerful they can be as well. All right, thank you. I feel like I'm getting dressed for a Halloween party. <clears throat> Actually, I look like I'm getting dressed for a Halloween party. Whenever I talk about C.S. Lewis, I have to have a little preamble. When I was a young college student and becoming a Christian, I discovered Lewis. And I did something I don't want any of you ever to do. I read Lewis during finals. <laughs> and then I discovered Tolkien, and I read Tolkien during finals. And then I flunked my philosophy major finals because of it, and I had to do them over. But that's what it did to me. It captured me in a way I had never been captured. And as a young Christian, I began to devour all of those books. And I'll never forget when I became an editor at Harper and started publishing biographies of Lewis and Lewis's brother and handbooks to the Chronicles of Narnia and books like A Severe Mercy, which are all, you're all too young to know about some of these. I became aware that Lewis was a guide for me in a way that I'd never quite understood anybody to be a guide for me. I was a philosophy major in college and I have a theology degree, but nobody had captured my imagination and my mind at the same time. Now, some theologians are very captivating and wonderful to read, don't get me wrong, like Dallas Willard, who I also published when I was at Harbor. Um, but Lewis covers the whole waterfront. So he's got something for everybody. But one of the things I discovered early on in reading Lewis is that his challenges 
as a young man, remember now he was 32 when he became a Christian. So what do you think he was doing during his 20s? Probably what you're doing, only more, a lot more. He was actually kind of a playboy during his 20s and an atheist. He said publicly and in his writings that he was an atheist, whatever that meant to him at the time. And the reason, one of the reasons he said he was an atheist, he said this. <clears throat> he said this in The Problem of Pain. By the way, The Problem of Pain is his first theological book, which would get me off on a whole other tangent, but I won't go there. Um, he says, what has been holding me back has not been so much difficulty in believing as difficulty in knowing. And he also says that my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, which is what I hear a lot from friends, that why can you believe in a God that seems so cruel and unjust? Last night I was at a gala for the Human Rights Watch and listened to people talk about 168 cases of people being killed and disappeared in different countries that the Human Rights Watch people are investigating. And I thought about how would you maintain your belief in God if somebody just took your husband off and killed him or took your child off and killed her or him? It would be hard. And he had had that experience as a young man. He had lost his mother, had a distant father, all of those issues. But his two things were one, I need to understand intellectually what Christianity is. Lewis did not process things. Lewis was brilliant, obviously, but he didn't process like we do in, in our modern age. He wanted to know what the truth was. And if you read Mere Christianity, you begin to get a sense of what he thought the truth was. And he was captured, captured by that. So that was one thing. The second thing was he wanted to understand the nature of God. Not just that God was alive, but what was God's nature. And then he writes a book about what? Love, the four loves. So you see Lewis doing exactly what happens in modern culture today. Trying to figure out whether God exists and if he does, what's he like? But if you don't know those things, if you don't have a sense of those things, it's hard to respond to that. And so he went looking, and of course he went looking through literature, which is where he found a lot of it. Although he did one other thing. I have a friend who's writing a book about this actually. Um, he's writing a book about Lewis right before his conversion and during his conversion. And I don't know if you know this, but Lewis went for a walk I'm very touched by this because when I became a Christian, I went for a walk with a friend. And by the time I got back from the walk, I was a Christian. It was five in the morning, but still. I thought I was by then. And Lewis went for a walk with J.R.R. Tolkien. And for five hours, <laughs> Tolkien persuaded him about the truth claims of Christianity. Five hours. Must have been a spirited time. All of us who've studied Lewis all of our lives would die to know what that conversation was about. We never will, but still. He went for a walk. He had a conversation about those issues. And then, as you know, he became a Christian on the back of a motorcycle 
which I wouldn't recommend that either, but if it works, it works. So those two things are always there in front of us in this modern culture. If there is a God, what is he like? And is he a loving God? Those two things. If we don't know those personally and can talk about those in those kind of logical and smart ways that Lewis does, then it's hard to respond to people today because they're all asking those kinds of questions. We're all asking those kinds of questions. I'm asking that kind of question right now because I'm waiting to get a phone call that my daughter's been, hopefully not, but she's not been arrested because she's at Occupy LA and she's one of the leaders there. And we disagree so much about so many things, but do you think I care about what we disagree about? No, I care about how much I love her and I don't want her thrown in jail. Although she thinks it's going to be kind of cool. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's not cool. So, let's think about that. Who God is? What's he really like? What's the truth claim of Christianity? And if it's true, is he really loving? That's what we need to know. That's what we need to experience. That's what we have to share with people. Thank you. Okay. You're all very patient. We'll keep thanking you all night. <laughs> um, is this working all right? Okay. On the table over here, I should mention there are two papers um, I'm hoping that each of you will pick up. Um, and these are papers pertaining to the two aspects of Lewis I was going to talk about. Um, the first is, um, as uh, to follow up on what Roy would just, was just discussing, Lewis was a, an atheist in his 20s and started out as an atheist actually um, early in life. Um, and Lewis, in fact, was such a adamantly atheist that he was going to write, he thought, the definitive book refuting Christianity or theism. And he thought he had all the arguments worked out. And uh, what started bothering him is the people that he respected at Oxford, since he was, he was a professor there, a professor of medieval and Renaissance literature, all the people that he knew there who he really respected and the books that he really enjoyed were written by, oh no, Christians. Tolkien was one, and there are others. And over the years, what happened was that he found that the arguments he had for atheism 
when he simply tried to spin them out, would just fall apart. And the way he described his situation was that um, he argued himself into a corner, and he had to admit that God was God. And he described himself as the most reluctant convert in all of Britain. The two papers, one is on Lewis's work uh, critiquing what's called naturalism. Naturalism is a more academic way to say atheism. Uh, naturalism means that all that exists is energy matter and the laws of physics, and everything that ever has existed and ever will exist and exist today is simply a spinning out of those properties and those entities in a sequence of events that cascade from the beginning of the universe to now. Um, the other paper is a paper on Lewis's views um, on what's called natural law. Does anybody here know, not know what natural law is? Don't be afraid. Natural law is a classic view that there is a reality of good and evil that exists, as well as other properties, such as the law of gravity and other natural laws, that essentially rule the world. And uh, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, this, of course, is, is reflected in the Ten Commandments, in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and many other parts of, of uh, Judaism and Christianity in which the idea of natural law, there's a natural code that we're subject to. In fact, Lewis, the way he described it, he said, he said that, that this defines us as human beings. We have this nagging sense of right and wrong that we can't get out of our minds. In fact, in fact we can't be human without this sense. Paul called, said that it was marked on everyone's heart. Anyway, the other paper is on Lewis's views on natural law and what that means to spin out as far as what we do in our lives. How do we treat other people? Uh, how do we behave in the public square and what the implications of that are? And there's an ethics to it and there's an economics to it. There are indeed natural economic laws. And in Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, he discusses this in more detail. He calls the natural law the Tao, not Taoism, but the Tao as in the way. And that the Tao is a universal sense of all humanity, every culture, every civilization. So at the back of the book, what he does is that he, he includes a, an appendix in which he goes through the ancient writings of China and Babylon and many other cultures and finds out that there is this unusual, amazing similarity across all cultures that the golden rule is upheld and stealing is bad and killing innocent people is bad and so on and so forth. Not to say that everybody followed a consistency or that the rulers followed it, hardly, but there was this sense and the, the, the success of that civilization depended upon how closely the civil law reflected that natural law. Here's a quote from Lewis in this regard. He says, if a man will go into a library and spend a few days with the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, he will soon discover the massive unanimity of the practical reason of man. From the Babylonian hymn to Samos, from the laws of Mamu, the Book of the Dead, the Analects of Confucius, the Stoics, the Platonists, from Australian Aborigines and Redskins, he will collect the same triumphantly monotonous denunciations of oppression, murder, treachery, and falsehood 
The same injunctions of kindness to the aged, the young, and the weak, of almsgiving and impartiality and honesty, he may be a little surprised. I certainly was to find the precepts of mercy are, are more frequent than the precepts of justice, but he will no longer doubt that there is such a thing as the law of nature. The pretense that we are presented with a mere, the, the pretense that we are presented with a mere chaos, that no outline of universally accepted values shows through is simply false and should be contradicted in season and out of season wherever it, it is met. Far from finding a chaos, what we find exactly is we should expect is good is indeed something objective and reason, the organ by way is it appreciated and apprehended, that is a substantial agreement with considerable local differences of, of emphasis and perhaps no one code that includes everything. So across these civilizations, they didn't get it every, everywhere right. And what happened historically um, was that, as Rodney Stark points out in his book, The Victory of Reason, that it was when Jesus came on the scene, he sort of clarified everything for people. He basically said, no, the Samaritan is a human being too. And women and slaves and generals and all the rest, they're all human beings, and they're all subject to the same rules, and they're all gonna be held accountable. And mercy and the grace of God is there for any person to take. So I highly hope that you'll pick up copies of those two papers. So let me just say uh, a couple things about this. Um, the first being this issue of, of naturalism. The naturalists will say, as I said before, that all that exists is energy matter and the laws of physics. And so there's this cascade of events through time. So the solar system, the universe comes into existence, the solar system, Earth, life, and here we are. And so we're watching each other, and we have ideas in our heads. But the naturalists will say these ideas are simply the reaction of biochemical processes determined by the laws of physics, quantum mechanics, and so forth. And those particular ideas necessarily occurred because of the previous sequence of events that led up to this moment. There's no free will, there's no choice, there's no reason, it simply is. And it was determined by environment and, gene and genes and so forth, and that's all there is and ever will be. The way Carl Sagan said, the universe is everything that ever has been, is, and ever will be. But Lewis points out there's a problem with this, with this position. The problem with this position is that the person who asserts that naturalism is true is assuming two things. One is that that person has free will and can make an inference, an assessment of reality and say, this theory is correct while this one is not. And is also saying that the view of naturalism can explain reality in a way that no other system can. So Lewis basically, for example, Lewis wrote a book called Miracles. And the first few chapters of that, he presents his critique of naturalism. You'll find it in other writings too, but that's the most focused presentation. And so Lewis basically points out that, let me, let me change the question slightly. Has anybody heard of the philosopher Alvin Plantinga? Okay, so Plantinga's written about this in more recent times. So Plantinga says that before anyone infers anything, you must necessarily assume you have a mind, that you have free will that you're communicating with other minds, there's order that you're assessing. 
all right? In other words, mind before matter, mind over matter. And there's no way to get around this. It's tautologically true. So the naturalist who says that only matter and energy and laws of physics exist must assume that, that, that he or she has the ability to have a mind that's independent of matter to make the assessment. Otherwise, you end up with this incoherent view that if Richard Dawkins writes a book called The God Delusion and is trying to persuade people who are Christians to become atheists, the point is that Richard Dawkins' views are determined, if you're a naturalist. Writing his book was determined. The person who's a Christian is determined. So he's writing a book to persuade people based on the views that he has, and the whole thing is incoherent. And so Planning has gone through this in great detail in, in, in different books that he's written. Uh, and Lewis does, uh, in my opinion, a great job of this as well. And so fundamentally what we end up with is if you take the naturalist position, the naturalist, and Bill Craig who spoke here last night is one of the top people who's also written about this, this problem. The problem is that most of the academic world, most of elite culture in the Western world since the Enlightenment has believed that either God doesn't exist or God is irrelevant. Maybe God created the universe, but who cares? He's not here now. The laws exist and that's all we care about. So we, we are here to make the best we can of our faculties and we're gonna sort of test the world through empirical testing and figure out what's true and what's not true. So the elite culture of the Western world pretty much has believed that naturalism is the worldview that is true and the only one that you can depend on. But the problem with it is that if you assume naturalism, that means that there is no reason, there is no choice. As Lewis put it, for science to exist, the scientist's own views cannot be determined by the system that he or she is analyzing. Otherwise, it has no meaning. The scientist has to be independent of the system somehow. And so what Planica shows and what Lewis shows earlier is that because naturalism is incoherent and self-refuting, that means that something must exist other than simply matter and energy and laws of physics that is non-material, that is either non-natural, extra-natural, or supernatural. And so Planica's point is that the mind is necessarily supernatural, which, is un which makes human beings unique. Man is created in the image of God, and in the beginning was the word. So the mind precedes everything, and the mind made the laws of physics and energy and matter and all the rest of it possible, and our ability to assess it. So in the, if you assume the naturalist view, you have a problem. Now, the way this has been endured for years, quite frankly, is because in higher education, most fields are so hyper-specialized, so siloed, that they're not even aware of the problems that they're involved in. They're pursuing good work in biology or physics or engineering or economics or whatever it might be, but they're fundamentally not even aware of the contradiction because they don't read Planninga or whatever. And so they're just siloed away from having to, having to be confronted with this dilemma. And the other reason is because it, fit, it essentially fits in with the nature of man, that man is prideful. Man wants to be his own god. He wants to set up his own, own rules. But as, as Planning and Lewis and others have shown, this really creates an, an unresolvable, incoherent, self-refuting position.
What Lewis further says is that if you assume naturalism is true, that means there are no individuals. The individual does not exist. There are no selves because you're simply so-called swarms of molecules behaving in certain ways. But the person, again, who presents that argument is assuming that, that he or she is an individual who makes that claim. So if you go to the University of California at San Diego and you talk to Pater, Patricia or Paula Churchland, Churchland who are um, one version of naturalists, they deny the existence of the self. In fact, they deny the existence of anything that is, has to do with humanity that you cannot prove exists in a brain that you test. So if someone has a, a love emotion or thinks something is beautiful or has a certain idea, if you can't find it in the brain itself, it is an illusion, okay? So this kind of a worldview logically leads to a big problem as far as Lewis was concerned, which is a dehumanization, a reduction of humanity into be simply, simply no different from rocks and trees and cacti and camels, and that if something doesn't go quite right, whatever that might mean, since there's no objective truth now, that some entity has to re-socialize people to be in the right way. And hence, Lewis believed that was the growth of all forms of collectivist ideologies in the modern era. So Lewis literally was able, as a scholar, in stepping out from the modern worldview as a medieval scholar, looking at the way the medieval people view the world in a natural law perspective and looking toward the modern era and seeing this dilemma. And many of the, the medieval scholars like Aquinas and Bothius and many others uh, were very mindful of this. So uh, again, I hope you get a copy of the papers um, and uh, I'm gonna stop there and see if there are any questions. And please uh, indicate who you'd like to ask the question of. And this doesn't have to be just about what we talked about. It could be any aspect of C.S. Lewis or related topics pertaining to Lewis. Uh, it's definitely different than sure. C.S. Lewis. Yeah. But read quite a bit of Lewis, and I finally broke down and read Till We Have Faces. Mm -hmm. And it was quite a, uh, I don't know, amazing literary experience. And I'll just throw it out to the panel. Does anybody have any thoughts on that book and um, anything to do with that at all? I'll go after you. Okay. Uh, I'll just say a couple quick things. Till We Have Faces, for those of you who don't know, is Lewis's last novel, the one he was most proud of. It is a retelling of a classic uh, story, Roman story, of the myth of Cupid and Psyche. And it's set in a pre-Christian world in a Greek city. Uh, it's a story of a queen. Um, and the issue is the meaning of love and relationships told from a woman's perspective. And um, I'll have Roy add what he wants to say. That's actually, of course, what the novel is. The thing I think that's interesting about that for him later in his life is that because he'd been working all of his life on these, if you want to call them deeper principles, that book, Till We Have Faces, captures what's really at the deepest level of, of civilization and human life, which is this kind of archetypal 
kind of pro profound primordial reality. And that was a real challenge to write about that, especially for him, because his normal sense is that you tell, is he was like a biblical writer. He wrote simple stories that capture our imagination. And that book, as you well know, captures you, but at a whole different kind of level. It's so unlike anything else he'd ever done. And my sense of it is that it really was his favorite novel because it, it went so deep into his understanding of what civilization was really all about and what collectivism was really all about and what it meant to really be an individual and captured it at that very profound level. Although I wouldn't recommend that that is where you start with Lewis. <laughs> I would start somewhere else, but... but and you mentioned the fact that it's, it's a woman's perspective. Right. Um, was there any theories regarding his wife, Joy, that she maybe coached him along the way or that mm -hmm. he looked to her as a resource? Now that's an interesting question. Well, no, I... I, <laughs> I don't know. Well, I think that it's... I mean, Roy mentioned uh, Lewis's earlier book called The Four Loves, and which is... A uh, the Four Loves is a study of love. In fact, Lewis's entire career was about love. His academic work, he wrote a book called The Allegory of Love and many other things. And so, in Till We Have Faces, it's a study of love. It's a love between sisters, it's a love between husbands and wives, it's a love between people and God, and there's all sorts of other things that are, are part of it. It's, it's a very sophisticated, very moving, there's actually a stage play of it now. Uh, which has uh, been in San Diego. I'm not sure if it will be coming up here. Um, but as, as far as uh, uh, Lewis's wife, as a woman by, by the name of Joy Davidman, and uh, Joy was an accomplished writer herself, and she definitely had an influence on Lewis, and you can see it in the book. In fact, I believe it's dedicated to her, isn't it? It is dedicated yep. to her. Yep. So, in so. that sense, yes. Yep. Any questions? I mean, Lewis, uh, I, should, I should add. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, question for you, David. Um, in, in our context, like from some of the things I've heard, is, is Lewis is now more relevant than ever before uh, in our cultural context because as we're moving, like, or as we're deep in postmodernism and, and as um, the academia with where it's going. Uh, can you maybe mention a few high points uh, of how C.S. Lewis is? writing intersects or is uh, especially relevant in our culture in what areas? You mentioned naturalism, which was, which was great. Um, well, Lewis, I mean, Lewis was quite prescient because he, he was a critic of so-called modernism, which is the view that the, the world is a machine and everything's determined physically, right? Which I just mentioned. But he's also a critic of what became postmodernism, which is the view there's no objective truth, everything's relative. Uh, and you have this incoherent sort of nihilist perspective. And so really reading The Abolition of Man, I can't more highly recommend that. It's a critique of subjectivism in aesthetics, epistemology, and, mor and mor moral ethics. It's beautifully written, it's not that long, and uh, you'll, you, everyone can benefit enormously from it. So um, I've been told that we're out of time. Uh, I want to thank you all for coming, and we'd be happy to answer questions uh, separately, and again, I hope you'll um, pick up copies of the papers. One last thing I'll mention is that those of you familiar with Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, um, is the stage production of that is coming to the Herbst Theater in late January uh, by Max McLean. It's been sold out, rave reviews everywhere around the country. If you want to have a notice about that, go to the Lewis Society table 
in upstairs in the plaza and just give us your information and we'll be sure to make that you get the email alert about that. So thank you for coming. Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life.